Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals to state senators to mayors to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. This week, I talk with Tennessee Senator Jeff Yarborough. He's the minority leader of the Senate. Every day, he fights for his constituents' rights, dignity, and good policy against almost impossible odds. We hear his story of growing up in rural Tennessee, watching his state shift from moderation to deeply conservative, and his strategy for moving his state back to the political center. Hear his pitch of why you need to run for office, even if your state is deep red, and why you definitely have to move to Nashville. Enjoy. Tennessee Senator Jeff Yarborough, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thanks so much for having me. So this has been a tough week for democracy, for those of us who are champions of individual rights and just good government. Can you talk a little bit about how you're doing and how you think the state of Tennessee is doing in the wake of Supreme Court rulings and January 6th hearings and everything else we're seeing right now? It's been a brutal week, and Tennesseans are going to be some of the first affected by the court's decision in Roe, and we're very much living in a politics that's dominated by the MAGA culture that led to the January 6th attacks. And so, I mean, we are, we kind of feel like we're on the front lines of seeing the the negative repercussions of what's been long in the making, but is really the true impact and scale has kind of been rammed home very clearly here in the last 10 days. Yeah, and I want to get into that. You and I are both attorneys, and it's shocking to watch the Supreme Court just sort of systematically undo 50 years of precedent. But I want to talk a little bit. I mean, you and I are, we're old, but we're not that old in that Tennessee was the home of Al Gore and a swing state. Now it's solidly red. Can you talk a little bit about what that transformation over your lifetime has been like? And and are there any prospects for shifting back? I gave a speech in my hometown about 18 months ago, the small town in rural West Tennessee where I grew up. And, you know, I think all those folks are voting pretty conservative these days. And I think they think I've changed. And I started by telling them that they were all Democrats when I left. <laughs> you know, look, Tennessee, for most of its history, was one of the more moderate states in the country. It was a bellwether in presidential elections for a century. And, the reorientation of politics 
after the 2000 election into red and blue America, we've taken a more strident turn to the right. And I think that I think there's a few different reasons for that. But I think that the way that that national politics is being presented to folks right now as this almost demographic ultimatum has been one that just numerically is a challenge in Tennessee. (laughs) And so I look, I think that we've got to, as Democrats, we have to be able to reach beyond what the current demographic makeup is of the two parties if we're going to succeed in Tennessee, right? I mean, that's, we have to build a bigger coalition and we also have to get people who haven't been engaged in the process to get engaged in the process. I mean, I think there's lots of lessons to learn from Georgia, especially, you know, Stacey Abrams' work and others and the people who've really just blown up the number of people who vote. But I think there's also a lot of lessons in the states where they haven't given up on any part of the state. You can't write off all of rural America and expect to gain political power in this country. Can you talk a little bit about that for those of us who are are in blue states or maybe working out of out of the beltway? How do we begin that engagement? I was looking this morning, you're the minority leader of the Tennessee State Senate. There are six Democrats and 27 Republicans. So that is a super, super minority. I don't even know if there's a specific word for it. So there's, I mean, just a long way to go. How, what's the first three steps that the party could take to make, to get you maybe three more seats or to double the number of seats you have in the state Senate? I think step number one is recognizing that the divide is not as stark as we sometimes believe it is. All right. As much as we're six of 33 in the state Senate, that's like 18 percent of the legislators in that body. Democrats still easily make up 40 percent of the state. That is a lot of people. There are more Democrats in Tennessee that voted for Joe Biden than there are in Connecticut or like in almost as many as there are in Oregon. Like there are lots of Democrats here to build on and to work with. And so, I mean, I think that we've got to recognize that that the path is not as impossible as we think. I think the second mental reorientation that needs to happen is that if you don't compete in places like Tennessee, you're also consigning yourself to lose in places like Michigan and Ohio and and other places. There's just there's not as much difference as people think, but the way that our system works through the electoral college in the United States Senate, if you're not capable of playing in the full extent of American geography, you're just not going to be able to actually gain the power and protections that you need. And then I think third, I think that we've got to remember that we're trying to actually, we're not trying to defeat and eliminate the other side, right? I mean, we are we need to see this as an opposition that absolutely needs to be removed from power, that needs to have the extremist 
elements run out of power, but the United States isn't going to really work if 30 to 40 percent of the country feels like the governing party doesn't have a place for it. And, and I think that I think that's the problem with where the Trump Republican Party is right now. But I think that that's a danger that we face in standing up to that nonsense is how do you stand up to that without becoming it? Yeah, I, I guess that's or how do you how do you even engage with the most extreme folks who are operating from a totally different set of facts and values? And, you know, I think I think you're right. We need a we need a competitive political landscape. But but it's really difficult to play when you have one one side or a, a segment of one side who's operating in a completely different world. <laughs> well, no, I think, I think that's right. But Ryan, one, one thing that I'd say is that I think we've got to start distinguishing a little bit more between the Republican Party in power the that you see out of Mar-a-Lago and Fox News and Mitch McConnell's office from the Republican voters, be they in Tennessee or in parts of California, right? I mean, there are lots of people who I, who I don't think are as bad as the politicians that they're rep- that are representing them right now. And I think we've got to figure out a way to get around that sort of right-wing media infrastructure and actually talk to voters because they believe things that are false about us, right? I mean, most Republicans right now think that you and me and almost every other Democrat is for open borders, think that Democrats are universally for defunding, you know, for all these sort of extremist type of things that frankly aren't true. And I think we've got to tell the truth to people, get some facts in front of them and actually show that we give a damn. I couldn't agree more. And I, I, I especially true in places like Tennessee. Do you think the January 6th hearings, the Dobbs decision, any of these other things will either mobilize the 40% of Democrats you talk about in Tennessee or help find, we can maybe find some common ground among some of those, some of those folks in the Republican party who are not leading from the extremes, but are, are maybe interested in a, in a woman's right to choose or not having free and fair elections or not having governments overthrown are any of these recent developments creating more middle ground in for you in Tennessee? Look, I think that there are lots of people who don't feel like this version of the Republican Party represents them and who are and will increasingly become open to some alternative. I think the question is whether we actually seem like a viable, socially acceptable alternative to them, right? I mean, I think that when you actually see the consequences of the Roe v. Wade decision and the extreme laws that have been passed in Tennessee and elsewhere, 
it's going to end up having a far different impact than I think Republicans really thought. For the last 50 years, we've been debating abortion based on whether people, you know, think that it's right or wrong in some ways. The debate has really never been that. The debate that matters and is going to increasingly matter now is how are you going to use the power of government to stop, investigate, and regulate that? And I think as you start seeing the consequences of that, it turns out that most Baptist Sunday schools, most small towns, like there have been abortions that have taken place all around the country in the red parts and the blue parts. And that that right has been a backstop for the way that people structure their lives everywhere. And as that starts fraying along with so many other things, I think that people know that it's broken and are going to be looking for an answer. I think the question is whether we're not going to actually provide an answer that's compelling. Absolutely. But in the short term, how do you try to serve your community and women who are in need of reproductive services, access to abortion? Is there anything that you can do to help to help the women in your district who who are now going to be faced with real and scary potentially criminal sanctions and just lack of access? That is what we've been working on basically since the draft of the Alito opinion came out. I, mean, I think we want to make sure that we're working with the healthcare community that's still trying to provide real health care and real help to pregnant women, the protections that they need to do their job. And I think we're trying to make sure that women who don't want to be forced to become mothers have some ability that's not constrained just by their income to you know, go elsewhere to find these services. And I think we're going to be playing a lot of defense against further crazy ideas. And I think we're also going to be trying to have a more proactive agenda to reform this extreme law. I mean, look, this is there's no better example of how the Tennessee legislature doesn't represent Tennessee than this issue. We're certainly more conservative in Tennessee on this than, than voters are in some other states. But still, a majority of Tennesseans don't want to see Roe v. Wade go away. Certainly, a majority of Tennesseans think there should be exceptions and that abortion should be allowed in the instances of rape and incest or when a woman's health is in danger. And virtually everyone thinks that you ought to be able to get good health care if you had a miscarriage. Right. I mean, so I think that there's real ways for us to legislate that will try to safeguard against some of the worst situations while we work with people across the country to try to build back the coalition necessary to get this fixed at a broader level nationally. You mentioned playing defense, and you're the minority leader of the for the Democrats in the state Senate. Can you talk about how you approach a legislative session when you have small numbers, but you have communities and people relying on you to play defense on their behalf? How do, how do you go in? What's the strategy you use? How do you how do you play defense on their behalf? Well, I mean, I think that we try to do a couple of different things. First, we try to 
have significant enough working relationships with our colleagues and enough credibility as legislators that we're able to actually stop some of the worst proposals from going forward. And every end of the year or end of session newsletter, there's a parade of horrible things that got passed. But really part of our job is to make sure that that list isn't three times as long. And it's amazing how much work, how much really damaging legislation, be it anti-choice, anti-gay, racist, <laughs> that we have stopped through just the using the legislative process, marshalling support, marshalling arguments, and trying to, to do the work. Sometimes, however, we also know that we're going to lose, right? And I think what you can't do, especially in a state like Tennessee, is you can't let people feel like they didn't even have a voice in the debate when they're getting the crap kicked out of them, <laughs> right? I mean, it, it is really important that someone be speaking on behalf of trans kids who are getting picked on by the legislature, right? And that's not, you have to have the, you can't get caught up in overthinking the tactics of day-to-day -day politics or the relationships in the with your Republican colleagues when it comes to something that is an assault on the people that you represent in the state. And I think it's at that moment, it's being the in the minority, it means giving voice to the minority as it's not getting its way, right? And when we think things are going the wrong way and trying to call on the conscience, frankly, of the majority to stop <laughs> and to, or to at least not see this, see these kind of extreme aspects of their job as something to take pride in. That sounds, I mean, it's, it sounds vital and it sounds exhausting. It can be, <laughs> you know, when, when you've only got, when you've only got six senators in your caucus, we don't have the space to have sort of role players. I, we can't have one person who fights and one person who does deals because the, we just don't have enough people. We have to have, have senators who are sort of complete players. They have to be able to work with Republicans and pass legislation that actually helps their communities, that makes the state better. They have to be able to work to stop things and they have to be able to stand up and fight and do the political work. So it's, 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 it's a challenging job, but it's also at this moment in time, I think it's even more vital than ever that you actually have minorities that take that job seriously. Can I ask, Let's let's hear the story of how you found yourself uh, in this position. Growing up in a small town in Tennessee, could have left and and worked anywhere, but you've chosen to come back to your home state. Has politics always been an interest? And how? Tell me how you ended up in the in the place you are today. Sure. So I spent the first eighteen years of my life in Dyersburg, Tennessee 
my dad uh, is a farmer. My mom was a social worker for the state investigating sexual abuse cases and child abuse cases when I was growing up. I was, uh, I assume, largely because I was the only person from my small town who ever found the the address for the admissions office. I ended up uh, going to Harvard as an undergraduate. And then while I was in college, I interned for Al Gore, who at that point was the vice president and was about to start running for president. And then I, and I worked on his campaign after, after graduating college. And so I've always had some interest in politics but I think the bigger piece of that is that it didn't intimidate me. I think for way too many people, politics is this thing that you watch on TV. And I think once you've seen even that the highest levels of American politics are filled with very normal human beings, <laughs> it just doesn't have the sort of intimidation factor that it that it can for 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 some folks. So when I was in my early 30s and I was disappointed with the decisions that were getting made in the legislature and started getting mad about it, it felt like the natural thing to do to run for office at that point. And so the first time I I did it it was really a you know, I ran a an a genu- an uphill race against a the longest serving state senator in Tennessee's history in, in a Democratic primary. He, you know, he was had been in the in the Senate for forty years, was beloved, and contributed three hundred thousand dollars to his own campaign the day that I announced. And I ended up in that election on on election night. I was declared the winner by two votes. And then they did some recalculations and I was tied. And then I was down by two votes with two provisional votes outstanding. And then it sort of went on like that for about two weeks. And I ended up losing by 17 votes. And when you lose by 17 votes, you, one, you start paying a lot of attention to your how to improve your field campaign. But I think second, you know, when you get that close, your friends really don't let you not run the second time. And when I decided to run that second time, Tennessee was already in a pretty deep minority. And so, I mean, we were actually five senators at the time that I was elected and three of us were brand new. And the, and even the other two were, you know, were, were not in the, business of really growing the party or being, uh, uh, I mean, they had been, been senators when Democrats were in the majority in Tennessee. And so I sort of always saw that part of my job is just reorienting the party to how we get through this moment of the most insane politics that most of us have ever lived through. And hopefully that any of us ever will live through. Make a pitch for, we got a listener out there who's sitting in an office, thought about politics, not sure, are angry about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, angry about January 6th, 
but they're in a red state, make the pitch that they should go out and and run for a legislative seat in a red state and try to try to begin the effort to turn the tide to reach out to voters and try to build a broader coalition. What's what's your pitch? Almost every day right now, people come up to me and say, I don't know how you do that job. I, I like I couldn't do that job. And I don't think that's true because even though we're facing this deep partisan disadvantage, I've been able to, over the last eight years to work across the aisle and pass probably 75, 80 pieces of legislation that genuinely help people, even in this conservative state, even in this time of broken politics, we're still able to get real work done that makes, that improves education, that improves public safety, that gives moms better access to childcare. And even when we lose, I promise there is no greater honor than standing up to defend someone's right to exist, someone's right to love who they want to love, to live the kind of life they want to live, to get the kind of health care they deserve. Fighting for people, even in that losing fight, there is no greater honor than that. And I mean, it really is, you can find joy in that work, despite the frustration of the battles you lose. That is a great pitch. I hope you get 20 great state senators, potential state senators (laughs) uh, with that pitch in your state. And you can move from minority leader to majority and serve even more folks. As we wrap up, we've been doing this thing where we ask folks, if I had 24 hours to spend uh, in your district, what would I do? I got to say, you know, everyone I know out here in California wants to move to Nashville. So your story is already well told. But but tell me if I got 24 hours in your city, how should I spend it? Should find a realtor to help you find which neighborhood <laughs> you want to move into. No, um, I feel like that's what's happening a lot right now because people from all over the country really are moving to Nashville. It's a great city and a remarkably welcoming city. I mean, the I think you you have to listen to live music in Nashville. And and we have all types. <laughs> I think people always think of us as a country music city, but we have one of the more innovative and fun rock and alt music scenes that you can find anywhere in the country. We have great food. We have great parks. You can drive to where they make Jack Daniels, which is a, a particular favorite of, of, of this Tennessee senator. And uh, I mean, really, it's a city that is just a fun place to be. We don't really think of folks as strangers here. I think that there is still some level of Southern hostility, for lack of a better term, that that does exist. But but you can enjoy anything that you would enjoy almost anywhere else. It, but it's it's a city that really just has a a character to it that 
is it's it's been a delight for me to represent. And I think the best part about representing it as I do is that you get to learn that there's so many parts of it beyond what you see in the tourist side, right? I mean, I represent the largest immigrant populations in all of Tennessee, sort of, and have a huge international corridor where you can literally find every type of uh, store and cuisine imaginable. And, but I think more importantly, find every type of experience imaginable. And so it's, it's, it's just a, it's a special place with a, with a big future. And I think if, uh, I hope you do come and spend 24 hours, if not more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm going to have to figure out a way to block that explanation from uh, the listeners in California so we don't lose any more population to y'all. But I I want to thank you. You've been a longtime fantastic member of the New Deal leaders. You've been an inspiration and you've been really, I think, a key leader in explaining to all of us what we need if we're going to have a 50-state strategy in this country and to be able to build a broader coalition and a broader party to fight for the values we care about. And so it's been, it's it's surprisingly, it took, took us this long to get you on the podcast, but it's great to have you talk at this, this really key moment in our country's history. Well, Ryan, it's really a pleasure. And I mean, I, I, I love being in the New Deal with you and my colleagues, but I also really want to thank you for doing this podcast because I think that, I mean, even though the title seems provocative these days to refer to politics as honorable. And I think that we have to remind people that there's there's good in this. It is not just the noise and the fights that you see on TV but there is genuine virtue and a way to help your fellow humans, even the ones you don't know in this job that, that you can't find many other places. And I appreciate you and the the way you've shined a light on my colleagues who've been far more successful at that than I have. Hey, I, I appreciate it. And I can't wait. I can have a glass of Jack Daniels at the next new deal. <laughs> gathering and hopefully celebrate you adding to your caucus and broadening the the fight for uh for for rights at this at this key moment that sounds great all right thank you jeff thanks so much thanks for listening to an honorable profession please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable boots row group produces podcast i'm ryan coonerty and because we keep things honorable no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast